Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. I suppose it's just another really important reason that we need to consider, you know, the conservation of all species, not just the ones that we go, oh yeah, you know, I think are cute, like, you know, your kākāpō, not just the ones that we go, oh, this one has a use to us because it's sequestering carbon or, or cleaning water, but also those species that are just there, that are just spiky and there and, you know, might not necessarily do anything good for us right now, but are an important part of the ecosystem nonetheless. And even if you're not into plants, most people are into butterflies, so surely we should get some more of these planted around the place. Kia ora, mai, harumai, ki huruhuri. Hello and welcome to Our Changing Worlds, ko Clerk and Cannon Tene. Taylor Davis Colley is a botanist and educator at Orokunui Eco Sanctuary. He actually doesn't really understand why people wouldn't be into plants. He certainly is. And one of the plants Taylor fizzes about is the focus of our chat today. It's a really cool species, and I, I think it's one of it is really one of my favourite plants because there are a few species like there's one just in the bushes there that really scream at you, "Do not touch me." I've headed out to Orokunui Eco Sanctuary to Korowai o Mihiwaka on the hills just to the north of Otipoti, Dunedin, to check out their latest species edition, but. It's far from soft and cuddly. Without even knowing what it is, if you looked at that, you would go, oh, yeah, that's a worry. I mean, it's just covered with these needles that come out of the stem, off the leaves. Every part of it looks spiky and uninviting. Yet it is the perfect host for this amazing native species of butterfly. This new spike-laden edition is a native tree nettle whose notoriety is encoded in both its scientific Latin and to reo Māori names. Onga Onga as a reo Māori name kind of refers to the need to stay away from the species, but the species' scientific name is Urtica ferox, and ferox meaning the fierce nettle, and I think that is super appropriate for what is one of the gnarliest, most, you know, fierce plants in the country, let alone one of the most fierce nettle species in the whole world, really. And the name is warranted. Here's part of an account of an onga onga poisoning from a 1993 edition of the New Zealand Medical Journal. On April 28, a stoical, experienced 60-year-old hunter was on a three-day trip deer-stalking with two friends in the Kaweka Ranges on the southern side of the remote Mangatanoka River. At around 9am, while descending into a small clearing, he slipped on wet grass and fell into a tree nettle known as onga onga. He was scratched about the legs, face and hands. Within the first 15 to 20 minutes, he began to experience severe abdominal cramps and thereafter a terrible burning sensation in his feet and visual blurring. By the time he reached camp at 10.30am, 
He was weak, confused and pale, sweating profusely, salivating and beginning to struggle for breath. He was writhing in agony from cramps. He became hypothermic despite multiple layers of woolen clothing, a mountain down sleeping bag and fires being lit in an attempt to warm him. He was unable to speak clearly, but denied hallucinations or loss of consciousness. 24 hours after the encounter with Urtika Ferox, he was able to walk stiff-legged around the clearing with the assistance of his friends. The helicopter arrived in the afternoon and he returned home late that evening. On presentation the next day, his gait remained stiff and he complained of residual tingling in fingers and tongue, muscular stiffness and soreness in his shoulders and limbs, and a foul taste in association with some flavours. Thus was a severe response to the well-documented but poorly publicised poisonous tree nettle, which has claimed at least one human and many animal lives in the past. Now, to be clear, this is an extreme case. This man fell into a large bush of onga onga. Taylor says that though they are called tree nettle, they don't really tend to grow up straight like a tree. Instead, they kind of fall over on themselves, they creep and bend and form large thickets. But unless you're unlucky enough to fall into a dense grove of them, most people's experiences go something more like this. I've had quite a few interactions with Onga Onga. Uh, it does like to live in a lot of places where I like to go and look for things. Uh, like I said, coastal Otipoti, it's all over the place. And uh, yeah, there are lots of times where you're crawling beneath things and you accidentally brush against it. And you know about it pretty quickly, but it does build for a bit and kind of gets worse before it peaks. And then after the stinging, it kind of tingles. It feels a bit like pins and needles for a couple of days afterwards. Sharp pain like a bee sting, followed by numbness and tingling for days? It's not really a good time. So why plant it in a public eco-sanctuary? Part of Aurokunui's vision and mission is to provide habitat for as many different native species and provide a, as complete an ecosystem as possible. And so, you know, we need to provide food for those pollinators in terms of these flowering plants but also uh, for a lot of these species they require very specific host species for the caterpillars to live in so we need to provide those as well and in this case it's onga onga. In particular onga onga is important for kahukura or the red admiral butterfly. Something already known but reinforced recently by the research work of University of Otago master's student Greer Sanger. I have been studying the preference and performance of the kahukura butterfly on native versus introduced needle species. It's a sunny spring afternoon at Takorowayo Mihiwaka. We pass through the double doors designed to keep pests on the outside of this fence sanctuary. Taylor tells us that he's recently spotted quite a few kahukura around. So Greer clues me in on what we're looking out for. Um, so the kahukura, as uh, in its butterfly form, is a... Um, it's like a kind of medium-sized butterfly, I would say. Um, they could like fit in the palm of your hand. They're about that size, and they have they're mostly black, and then they have some patched areas where they have red, like a bright, beautiful red on them. And then on the bottom wing, our species, they have these little blue, like eye spots on the very bottom, um, which is. Uh, they look pretty cool, and that was one of like the distinguishing features from them to the other red admirals from 
other countries. <laughs> um, so they do look quite different and ours is specific and endemic to New Zealand. So not found anywhere else. We're making our way down the gravel path towards the butterfly track. The path is lined with green native bush and birds are chirping all around us. And on the way, we keep our eyes peeled. That one's not in the sun. But you can, oh, here we go. Oh, yeah. In this oriho here, which is Pseudopanax uh, cleansley, it's uh, one of the really early flowering species. And way up the top, uh, there's a kahukura, a red animal butterfly, um, amongst lots of other little pollinators that are fluttering around at the moment. Yeah, it looks like a busy little bush. Yeah, well, because it's so early in the season, not that much else is, is flowering yet. And so when you have these few species that are, they kind of, it's kind of like a bit like watering holes, in, I suppose, in, in the desert. They, they attract things from all around the place. So yeah, these bushes have had so much action over the last couple of weeks. Um, and you can see that they're, they're, they're almost actually done flowering now. There's another one. Yeah. And we even had, like, we had school kids come through and there was sort of 10 or so on this bush. And even we stopped and, like, a couple landed on the kids. It was like, some real Disney princess type stuff. <laughs> it was awesome. Another one. Yeah, so they're probably ones that have overwintered as yeah. adults, I think, and then come out. This is the neat thing about these kahukuro we're spotting. They're not freshly born butterflies, but instead adults that would have hatched late last summer and spent the winter hiding out somewhere. So they can live... Oh, there's another one. Um, they can live for longer if they're the ones that overwinter. I think they go into a state of reproductive diapause. Um, and I think they just hang like somewhere, like maybe under trees, branches or leaves. And they just kind of stay there and they sort of like a hibernation. And then... Um, on like warm winter's days they can come out and then you can see them like feeding off flowering plants and stuff um but yeah and then in this time of the end now when it's starting to warm up again they kind of come out of that state and you see them more often um we don't know whether they have already mated and then go into state of reproductive diapause over the winter and then when they come out maybe then they can go straight into laying eggs or they come out of the overwintering and now they have to find a mate to lay eggs. We're not really sure which way it is. <laughs> um, but that tends to be how it works with other butterflies. So they find somewhere dry and sheltered to hunker down for the winter. Greer says people aren't really sure where, which Taylor takes on as a personal challenge for next winter in the eco-sanctuary. One theory is that they might hide in the dry leaves that hang off the bottom of Tikoka cabbage trees. But that kind of skirt of dead leaves tends to be a hotspot for parasitoid wasps, some species of which are just not good news for kahukura. Taylor goes looking and with just a few seconds of rustling, he comes across a small one to show me. Yeah, the parasitoid wasps are definitely a problem for the kahukura butterflies. They, um, there's quite a few parasitoids I think that attack them, but they tend to go for the chrysalises. Um, in that stage, and then they just, yeah, kill them, essentially. A tiny, I don't know yeah, nothing about parasitoid wasps, ones, apart yeah. from this is a species of parasitoid wasp, which, yeah, will paralyse either a caterpillar, or so we have a lot of ones that paralyse spiders here in Aotearoa, and then they'll lay their eggs in it, and it is kind of like the alien, where the little eggs hatch and then eat the hosts and then burst out. It's yeah. really full on. <laughs> 
parasitoid yeah. wasps, wasps have quite specific host relationships. Mm. So, you know, you have a specific parasitoid wasp that lay, only lays its eggs in the one caterpillar species or one spider species. And this is one of the reasons that parasitoid wasps often make quite good biocontrol agents. So around the world, uh, different species of parasitoid wasps are often introduced to countries that have a problem with a particular caterpillar because they will target specifically that caterpillar without targeting any of the native ones. Mm. Um, yeah, so they're quite useful in that respect. In the past, they haven't done that so well with testing them because they introduced some parasitoid wasps to try and uh, combat the the white cabbage butterflies. Mm. And then they didn't test if they were like host-specific enough. So they brought them over, they introduced them, and then now they uh, found out that they aren't very host-specific. So they also go and parasitize the kahukura and other species of butterflies that are native. Yeah, they have to do rigorous testing before they introduce them, but they didn't used to know that, I guess. Greer is talking about the introduction of the Pteromalus puparum wasp in the early 1930s. The idea was that these wasps would take out the non-native small and great white butterflies, which were feeding on cabbages, native cresses and brassica crops. But yeah, as Greer says, subsequently they found out that they also attack the native red admiral, Kahukura, and yellow admiral, Kahukofi, butterflies. It's tricky to pin down exactly how much of an impact this introduced wasp is having on the population. One study of pupae mortality in the wild showed that two non-native wasps, one this introduced Pteromalus puparum and another one thought to be self-introduced from Australia, were taking out 40% of the Kahukura pupae at the sites they studied. Anecdotal evidence suggests that Kahukura numbers have declined since the early 1900s, partially due to this wasp predation, but also because of the loss of their host plant, Onga Onga. I think historically it would have been found across Aotearoa. It's certainly much less common now in the upper North Island. There are other species of native nettle that live in those areas. And I think maybe, like, you know, historically Onga Onga would have been more prevalent in, the, in, southern, in its southern distribution, but still present there. But nowadays it's, it's almost completely lost from those areas. And the other species of nettles are both also relatively uncommon compared to what I imagine the original distribution was. Um, one of them is it likes to live in wetlands, which are a really modified uh, habitat across Aotearoa, and then another likes to live in forests, and that's another really modified habitat. So, yeah, across the country, you know, we in places here, we're really lucky with the amount of nettle we have. In other parts of the country, uh, certainly not so much. There's definitely anecdotal... Um stuff that's been written about there being lots of kahukura commonly found like all over New Zealand, even up north in Northland. So they definitely used to be there at one point and now they're not. And then that seems to be the same case with the ongaonga nettle. Which brings us back to what Orukanui are trying to do. Create a space where native butterflies and pollinators can thrive. So just down here, this is the butterfly track. So there's all sorts of plants on here uh, that are Hopefully encouraging the butterflies, things like the uh, tarata, this lemonwood is a rich kind of lemony aroma which tracks a lot of invertebrates. We've got lots of the native uh, tree daisies of the, both the olearia and the ozothamnus groups. Uh, and those have big white flowers as well, which are designed just to kind of be general attractants to any invertebrates that might be flying around and looking for a feed. So yeah, this is what this kind of track here in this area is set out for. 
And this is also the area that we planted unga unga in because, you know, if the butterflies are here feeding, they might as well have somewhere to nest as well. Now, unga unga is not something you can pop down to your local garden centre to pick up. These plants were raised by Greer. I was growing them for my master's research project. So my aim was to catch kahukura around Dunedin at different sites and put them in oviposition cages, which is oviposition means egg laying. So we wanted to test to see which nettle species they prefer to lay the eggs on. So we had to grow unga unga and the Chatham Island nettle and also their introduced dwarf nettle. So we had... In the position cages would have a cutting of the unga unga and of the Chatham's nettle and of the dwarf nettle. And so when we caught a kahukura, we would put them into the cage, so then they'd be trapped in there with the nettle options. And then we'd also have a little sugar dish in there, just as a bit of a supplement. Yeah, so we put them in there for three to four hours, and then once time was up, we would release them again. Um, we did this all at the location where we caught them because we wanted to have like the least impact we possibly could on the kahukura. Yeah, and then so then we just kind of looked at each of the needle cuttings. We just looked very carefully to see if they had any eggs on them. And the eggs are really small. They're like one millimetre in size. So they're just these little round balls, like lightly green coloured, and they have ten white ridges that go up the sides of them. And those are the eggs, so we were just looking for those and counting them. And then at the end, we kind of got to see which one they preferred, which ones they chose to lay eggs on and how many and that sort of thing. The main reason for her work was to figure out whether the kahukura were falling into an ecological trap. So an ecological trap is where there's a preference by either an individual or a population for a like worse habitats, like a lower fitness providing habitat over a better fitness habitat. So that's kind of what we were looking at. Like, are they getting signals from this closely, somewhat closely related other nettle species that it's a good option to lay the eggs on when it might not be because they haven't co-evolved together. And who's setting these traps for our wildlife? Well, it's us, of course. We introduce plant species or different environmental conditions, and in some cases, creatures are tricked into thinking that it's good for them. For example, frogs croaking, trying to find a mate, beside swimming pools in which frog spawn just won't survive. Or dragonflies, who detect water by means of polarised light reflecting from the liquid surface, being tricked by the shiny reflection of black roads after rain or polished black gravestones. One inadvertently laid trap caught out a local population of Edith's checkerspot butterflies in Nevada and wiped them all out. These butterflies lived on an alpine meadow owned by the Schneider family, who kept cattle on it. Having co-involved with their native wildflower host plant, the Blue-Eyed Mary, the butterflies started evolving a preference for an invasive plant, Plantago lanceolata. Unlike the blue-eyed Mary, Plantago didn't die back in summer, so caterpillars fed on it longer and more lived to adulthood. Generation upon generation saw this preference for Plantago spread, until the entire Schneider meadow butterfly population swapped to using it. But then... The trap was sprung. The Schneider stopped cattle ranching, the Plantago was overgrown by grass, and the entire population of Edith's checkerspot butterflies in this meadow was wiped out. 
So that's kind of like my overarching reason for why I wanted to look at this stuff. And what were the results? What did you find out? Um, so from the oviposition experiment, we found that they definitely had a preference for the native over the introduced. So they preferred to lay eggs on the unga unga and the Chatham Island nettle. And none of them chose to lay eggs on the dwarf introduced nettle. So we had, we caught a total of 47 butterflies across various sites around Dunedin. And 10 of them laid eggs for us which is quite good. It doesn't sound like a lot, but in our field, it can be really difficult to even get one to kind of do this type of stuff. So it was very good. And yeah, eight of them chose to lay on the unga unga and two chose to lay on the Chatham Island nettle, um, which is quite interesting because the Chatham Island nettle doesn't really naturally grow in this area. Um, it can be found, I think, further south, like more in the cargo kind of area. And then also obviously on the Chatham Islands. Yeah, but we kind of thought it might be one that they would like because there's a subspecies of kahukura that live on the Chatham Islands and that's the main plant that they have to lay their eggs on. So that's kind of why we wanted to include it and we could get our hands on the seeds, so it worked well. But yeah, they, none of them chose to lay on the introduced nettle, so... Okay, yeah. not a fan of the introduced dwarf nettle. No. For laying, anyway. Yeah, for laying eggs, yeah. But they have been seen in the wild, as in not an hour, every position cages, laying eggs on the nettle, on the introduced nettle, that is. So it does happen, but they obviously, when they have the choice of all three, our study suggests that they don't prefer to lay the eggs on it, but it does happen. <laughs> and we think that that's possibly because it's more abundant and regularly found like lots of people just have it growing in the backyards and it's very common in urban and rural kind of like farming landscapes to just have the introduced nettle kind of everywhere so we think that that could be kind of the facilitating reason why we do see them sometimes laying eggs on them even though they prefer the unga unga and the chathams since recording, Greer has discovered that the seed she had for the Chatham Island nettles, Urtica australis, may not have been purebred plants, but rather hybrids with another Urtica species, possibly an introduced one, because the seeds were collected from open pollinator plants in a garden environment containing other species. So this does put an asterisk next to her Chatham Island nettle results. But the onga onga were definitely Urtica ferox. Greary explained to me that one of the tricky parts of doing these experiments is that you can't tell, well, without dissecting it, if the butterfly you've caught is male or female. So sometimes you're putting a butterfly in the cage that might not even be capable of laying eggs. If they are ready to lay, at least some of them do seem to carefully consider their choices. I watched on my first day in the field, which was awesome. I um, I caught a kahukura on the very first day, and we put it in the oviposition cage. And I watched for about 20 minutes as it flitted around between the three different needle cuttings we had. And it would sit on each one of them, and it would use its front folded up vestigial legs. And they're like very bristly. Um, yeah, and they'd kind of like 
push them forward and brush them against the plant. And it would keep doing this for about 20 minutes, flitting between them all. And then eventually it decided to lay all 62 eggs on the unga unga plant. So it didn't lay any eggs on the other ones, just on the unga unga. And yeah, in all cases that where we had kakakura lay eggs, they chose either the unga unga or the chathams. Like they didn't choose to lay on both. They'd choose one or the other. Um, so yeah, they really decided like which one they thought was the better option based on the chemicals it gave off. So given options, it seems the butterflies don't pick the newly introduced dwarf nettle. But what about in those places where they no longer have a choice, where dwarf nettle is all they have? Once the eggs hatch, how did the caterpillars fare? This was Greer's next experiment. So with all the eggs that we caught, um, we took them into the lab and we read them out until they emerged as uh, little tiny caterpillars. And then we, I moved them all into their own little ice cream container and I gave them, they randomly got assigned either unga unga as a food source or Chatham Island or the dwarf nettle as the foods and we weighed out the nettle leaves and they all got the same amount and then I looked at like how long they survived like whether they survived until adulthood until they you know became a chrysalis and then became an adult butterfly able to fly around Um, at that point we would release them Um, but when they became a chrysalis we also weighed the chrysalis because that showed was another sign of how nutritionally good the plant was because they would get bigger and heavier and fatter on a nutritionally good plant than on a not-so-good one. So those are the two main things that we looked at, was the survivability and the pupa weight. This is the second part of that ecological trap question. The dwarf nettles would be a trap if the caterpillars don't do well on them. It's not really like they can go elsewhere. When they choose the plant to lay on, the adult butterflies kind of decide the caterpillar's fate. So how did they go in Greer's experiment? The survival was much better for the ones that were fed the Chatham Island nettle. And the there wasn't much difference in survival between the ones that were fed on the unga unga and the dwarf. They were pretty similar. So they can survive on the introduced nettle, which is good to know. Um, but they also, with the pupa weight, there was definitely a clear sign that they did better, they were way heavier on the unga unga than on the other two. So yeah, it's kind of like the survival was better on the Chathams and then the pupa weight was better on the unga unga. So I guess the native ones kind of won. (laughs) And whether which one of those is really better, we're not really sure. Um, Of course, our study only looked at stuff that was like in the lab setting so it was just the nutritional value of the plants that we could really gauge this off whereas in the wild there's lots of other things that can affect it such as like uh, parasitoid wasps and that kind of stuff so some plants like the unga unga might actually be better for protecting the caterpillars just because they've got bigger leaves they can kind of wrap um the caterpillars can kind of pull the leaf in around them with silk and form a little tent and it's covered in a little spine so it's like it helps like predators like spiders and all that kind of stuff like can't really get in there as easy to get them whereas on the introduced dwarf needle they've got like much smaller leaves so that's only really works when they're very small caterpillars once they get bigger like they can't really wrap the dwarf needle leaves Mm -hmm. around them for protection 
and then they're much more obvious on the plant. This is my favourite fact of the day, that kahukura caterpillars can curl the leaf around them to make a little armoured shady house. And they actually eat those spines. Like, I've like some cool close-up images of these little tiny caterpillars eating the spines. They just eat all of that stuff that stings us and like makes our hands go numb. That just doesn't do that to them. Um, and a lot of butterflies and stuff, they sequester like the toxins and that from the plants like, and all those kind of chemicals. And then that ends up helping them become like unpalatable to potential predators like birds and stuff, which is why we don't really see many birds at all really go for the kahukura. So Greer's studies suggest that the dwarf nettle isn't working as an ecological trap when there are options of natives. But if they only have dwarf nettle to lay on, then it seems that the caterpillars fare worse on them. And this could be further exacerbated when outside of the protective lab environment. Right now, she's writing up her master's thesis, though Greer hopes to continue to do more research in this area in the future. And at the end of her experiments she had a lot of onga onga plants left over and started reaching out to people who might want them. Luckily, her message ended up in just the right inbox, that of plant fizzer Taylor Davies Collie. So I got this email from Greer, who I didn't know yet. At Autokunua, I get all sorts of emails about all sorts of things. So an email saying, did I want some nettles to plant was not, you know, not unusual, but still a, a really exciting thing to receive. And uh, I talked to our team and, and it's a species that, should be in the sanctuary. It should be present here, and historically, likely was. So I got this email about planting these, and yeah, I was really excited. We got back to Greer, and we jacked up to get 25 of these amazing plants put in, and we got them to come up and plant them as well, which was great. And on top of that, it's it's awesome to form that relationship where they've managed to give us some posters in terms of interpretation, and they've managed as well to kind of provide us with a bit more knowledge that we can use to help tell the story of these plants while they're here, which is a really important part because, yeah, we could have just put them in the ground, but there's so much more opportunity there to enrich people's knowledge about these species, and that's been a really cool part of this relationship as well. i got to say, you're probably the only guy who's like, yeah, I got this email about somebody who wants to give me nettles, and I'm so stoked. <laughs> any any email that's like coming to me and is like, oh, we've got some plants to give you is a really good email. Uh, but, you know, particularly when it's a species like Onga Onga, because, yeah, this is not a garden store species. And I have asked, <laughs> um, even, even specialist native nurseries don't often stock this species, not because it's something they don't want to stock, but because it never sells. No one's going, mm, you know, doing a bit of landscaping and thinking, oh, yeah, a nettle there would go all right. But hopefully the the goal of these plants is, is in some ways, they are in the ambassadors. They are the, the exemplars for people to go, oh, actually, this would be cool. Not Even if not because they're cool plants, but because butterflies are great to have in your garden. We stroll further down the butterfly track until we get to an area of long grass, just off the path and by a little stream. Up until now, we've seen individual onga onga plants amongst the bush, but in this long grass, there are a set of four planted close together. Taylor is looking forward to a future filled with more Disney butterfly moments. I'm kind of hoping either one of these patches, like this one here or these one in back, form like just a big old, huge, big huge clump. And that at the right time of year, we just see it dense with 
Kahukuda and Kahukofai all over it laying laying their eggs. And then, yeah, it would just be so cool. It'd be such a, an interesting, different thing for people to interact with because they might not see this species at all. And I think it's something that I really like about placing something like this here within Orokanui because it's almost like it being in the sanctuary raises its profile automatically. And a classic example, this is the like, paradise shell ducks, the putakitaki. They're, they're common and they're all across the country and people you know, hunt them. But we have a pair in the sanctuary and because they're here, people think they're amazing. They're like, oh, they're so beautiful. I've never looked closely at them before. And I think it's the same here, whereas people might think, oh, this is a weed growing under the, in the undergrowth as they visit the local beach. Because it's here in the sanctuary, I think people will see it and treat it differently. They'll treat it as if it's meant to be here, as if it's a part of the ecosystem. And then they might take that away with them and think about it differently wherever they go. It's fierce and spiky. We don't like it because it hurts. And it's easier for us to relate to cute and fluffy birds, charismatic large trees, or, well, beautiful butterflies. But maybe it shouldn't be about what we think. You know, we can have species that are contrary to humans. Uh, a classic example of this is, is the way that karaka is being thought about in Aotearoa now, where because it drops these fruit that are poisonous to dogs, in a lot of places people are like, let's get rid of karaka, it's not something that, you know, is part of our ethos, because if I want to go to the park, I want to have my dog running around and not worried about it. And I suppose it's the same thinking in that, yeah, we could remove all the onga onga and make sure that if you are wandering through the forest, you're never going to have that risk of getting stung over your body and being in extreme pain or at worst dying. But it's kind of an acknowledgement of that nature is beyond humans in a way, you know, it's bigger than us. Thanks to Taylor Davis Colley, botanist and educator at Orokanui Eco Sanctuary, and to Greer Sanger, master's student at the Department of Zoology at the University of Otago. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon. Thanks to Justin Gregory for editing help with this episode and to Our Changing World assistant producer, Ellen Rikers. Sound engineering was by Phil Bench and Tim Watkin is the executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. You can find and follow Our Changing World on your favourite podcast provider. Check out the show's website at rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld for some onga onga and kahukura pictures. And if you want to get in touch with us, we're on Facebook or Twitter at RNZ Science. Make sure you check out some of the other awesome RNZ podcasts. In the latest release, Know My Town, Justine Murray explores the stories behind some of the place names around Aotearoa. Find it on your favourite podcast platform or via the podcast and series tab on the RNZ website. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai to wiki. <laughs>